Good morning. Welcome everyone uh, in person and those watching and listening online. We're studying lesson four today in our quarterly, the second quarter uh, entitled Luke. Uh, the lesson is the call to discipleship. Uh, let's start with prayer. A gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this beautiful day, this beautiful Sabbath day you've given us. Um, I want to thank you for the Sabbath itself and what it says about your character. I want to uh, ask that you guide our study this, this morning. Um, send your angels and Holy Spirit to grant us a greater measure of light than, you've, than the uh, amazing amount of light you have already granted us. We, we thirst for more. We understand that we, as disciples, we are to be ever learning. I want to ask blessings on those of our group who were unable to be here and bring them back safely in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Call to discipleship from Sabbath's lesson, the memory verse. Then he, meaning Jesus, said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Lesson gives a definition, uh, one definition of disciple, and that is a pupil. Uh, and I, I like this definition because we, as finite beings, are to be ever learning. And since Christ is the source of infinite knowledge, we we have an inexhaustible uh, well to drink from, a well of knowledge that we we will never ever. We won't even scratch the surface of it. I mean, think about the, think about the, um, the links that human understanding and human knowledge has come to since uh, creation. And Scripture is kind of silent on the intellect uh, and the capabilities of of the the generations before the flood. Uh, inspired writing, Ellen White's Patriarchs and Prophets indicates that they were a very, very, very smart and and strong uh, group of people. But just think about, say, the last 50 years um, since I was born. The amount uh, of, think of what's been done with human capabilities and human knowledge and medicine and science and uh, technology. Even the last 10, 15 years, uh, think about the explosion of, of, uh, of the wealth of understanding and knowledge that has, uh, has grown. And all, all of this... All the knowledge comes from the source of infinite knowledge. How we use it, however, depends on um, which uh, government we choose to follow, the government of Satan or the government of, of God. Um, also, from there's a quote from Ellen White from The Desire of Ages, which is a, a really nice quote. God takes men as they are and educates them for his service, if they will yield themselves to him. He doesn't force his education on any of us. Or does he coerce us into it? The Spirit of God received into the soul will quicken all its faculties. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the mind that is devoted unreservedly to God develops harmoniously and is strengthened to comprehend and fulfill the requirements of God. The weak, vacillating character becomes changed to one of strength and steadfastness. Continual devotion establishes so close a relation between Jesus and his disciple that the Christian becomes like him in mind and character very reassuring that God takes men as they are. Um, broken, um, even as, uh, for example, Saul Tarsus's case, even those working in direct opposition to him. He can, he can mold and shape them to uh, 
his disciples and his allies and 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 uh, use them for for great good. What um, understanding then that since Christ is the source of infinite knowledge and we are finite beings, how does that put the first commandment into any? any does it put it into any different perspective from what we were raised to think? Remember the first commandment. How's it start? I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, this is Christ beginning the process of revealing Himself to the children of Israel, and this is this is an important concept to grasp. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Humankind has been running away from the only source of life in the universe. We've been, we've been actively trying to hide ourselves from God because something changed in the genetic code and made us afraid of the only, the only being in the universe that can heal us. And God has been trying to restore his image and his character into mankind ever since. All of the interventions in, in Eden, um, the ground shall be cursed for your sake. Uh, the um, the woman, the, the wife will serve your husband and he will rule over you. The, um, the, the increased pains in childbirth. The captivity even in Egypt was a God letting the, letting the people go. Letting them go and, and experience the consequences of their choices and behavior. And then bringing them out of Egypt, he's again reminding him, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Did they remember that? No, it wasn't long after that that they, they built a, an idol. They had Aaron build an idol in the shape of a bull. And they said, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. We kind of marvel today, but do we do we behave any differently? But that's the kind of God they could tolerate being around. Yes, in their darkened state, they 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 couldn't tolerate Moses coming down off the mountain with the reflected glory of God. They they could they could tolerate a God that they could see, a God that didn't um, convict them of conscience, uh, a God who um, they could touch, God that was made out of something tangible. And they could do whatever they wanted. <laughs> yeah, a God, that, a God that licensed them to do whatever they wished. That's right. So, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This has often been presented as God arbitrarily flexing his muscle. Do it my way or take the highway. In the context of him trying to, you know, God trying to disciple us from ever since the fall, he's been trying to to, to raise up disciples to to imprint his character on humanity uh, and get finite beings to conceptualize the infinite and to worship the infinite because there's there's certainly nothing on earth that we can. Human beings are the crowning act of creation. There is nothing on this planet. That has higher mental capabilities, higher higher faculties than the human being. So, if we worship anything on this earth, 
it will eventually lead to degradation. And even in heaven, even angels are created beings. We still have our idols today. Sure we do. Absolutely. We don't like to think of them as that, but that's that's what they are. Even a false god concept. There's a there's a passage in Ellen White somewhere that says that if you if you are worshiping a false view of God, you're you just assuredly it's, it's just like worshiping Baal. You're worshiping a pagan god concept. You might as well just worship Baal. I don't remember the quote, and I that's a rough paraphrase, but that's the gist of it. Any other thoughts? By beholding, we become changed. That's right. And that is known as the law of? Worship. The law of worship. Okay? This is not an arbitrary law that God decided, hmm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just legislate a law of worship, and that's the way things will be. No. This is part of his, part of his character. It's a revelation of his character of love. That everyone worships something, and so depending on what we worship, we will eventually become like what we worship. It is a law. It's the law. Of, it's part of the law of life. Sunday's lesson. Um, someone look up Luke five and read verses one through eleven. This is the this is the miracle of uh, the net the the abundance of fish. This is where Jesus calls his first disciples. Luke 5, 1 through 11. Actually, raise your hand so we can get the mic over there. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is a powerful uh, passage. There's a lot going on here. Any, any observations? I've listed a few, but I want to hear your thoughts. Well, what, what can we what can we glean from this? The futility of our efforts sometimes. Okay. Man's efforts, unaided by divine strength, can often be futile. What else? In the back. Sounds like they left the fish, which was worth quite a bit of money, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. For the, something better. For something they, better. They, they left the fish. They did, they did forsake all. They they left their fish to become fishers of men. What else? God never uh, takes away something that doesn't give something better. So in this case, he didn't take it away on the fish. They they chose to walk away. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't take anything. Exactly. But it was uh, it was definitely something better. And his blessings are 
overflowing. See uh, some similarities to God taking the 12 tribes out of Egypt to spend time with him to get to know him better, and then Jesus is calling out 12 disciples to spend time with them and get to know them better. Good. Yeah, that's, that's one I hadn't thought of. <clears throat> um, uh, excellent point. At uh, that same point, he hadn't planned on it being 40 years, so he was hoping the relationship would grow a lot faster. Yeah. Sometimes we we are distracted and, and not tuned in enough that it uh, the circuitous route is sometimes on us. Correct. When things don't come through. It's always on us. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> my observations nature obeys its creator okay well prompted the fish to swim into the nets the creator asked it to when god gives he gives abundantly okay he didn't he didn't have 40 50 fish swim in he had enough fish swim in to possibly sink the boat Yes. I think that's an interesting concept that you just suggested there. What made the fish swim into the net? You said their creator asked them to. He had a relationship with us fish. Mm -hmm. He asked them to do that. He asked the fish to give their lives. Exactly. They were swimming to their death. Yes. Swimming to be food. He asked them to do that, and they, with that relationship, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know... To swim into a net, no matter what you think of a fish's intelligence, to swim into a net deliberately, Mm -hmm. that goes against whatever a fish would normally. I would imagine it goes against their their instinct for you know for captivity. A couple a couple of comments over here. Well, I I noticed the fish didn't suddenly appear in the boat. Um, Right. Jesus asked them to do something. they saw they had a, just a remnant of faith when they started a seed of faith, and when they saw the result, they were very their faith grew. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, he didn't just throw all the fish at him. He said, "Go do this." That's good. Yeah, that, I've got that in a in a later observation. I think that uh, he was trying to teach these disciples maybe not to concentrate so much on the cares of this life rather than trying to help spread the gospel. Yeah. I th- I think that's a uh, excellent observation as well. He was starting that process. We need to be willing to follow, even if we don't know the outcome. Okay, Peter's response. Oh, we've been fishing all night, but because you asked, because you said so, we'll go to deep water and try again. In in the book, my utmost first high okay. chambers. There's a uh, one of the the week studies or day studies. It talks about. It's like being a bow and arrow in the hands of God. And he stretches and he stretches and we say, God, I can't take it anymore. But he doesn't stop the process because he can see the target. He Mm. can see the goal. And if we allow ourselves to be flexible and trust, then the ultimate outcome is worth the effort. And I love how it uh, starts wrapping up that one. It's like, and then life can become a great romance mm-hmm. because that, that love and trusting relationship and every day and every, it can be a new and, and uh, a wonderful experience. Good. Anyone see a microcosm of the salvation in this story? Come to I did. Okay. What happened first? 
Verse 1. He taught. He taught. Christ was teaching from the boat. He presented the truth. Mm-hmm. He spoke the truth. He, he presented the words of life in a loving manner. And he left his listeners free to make a decision for themselves. So the truth was presented. He gave them enough evidence to be- begin to believe, too. He didn't just ask them to say, Oh, uh, uh, trust me, I have your best interest at heart. Follow me. Well, he gave some evidence. I think, I think he did um, ask them to believe first. Because he, he said, Bring your boat out into deeper water. And Peter said... We fished all night and have a same had a thing. Nevertheless, at your word. So there had already been some of that truth must have have sunk into Peter's mind to, to understand that these words these words I'm hearing, their life, they th- this this teacher has something that I want that I don't. They trusted. Eve. This wasn't their first interaction with Christ right. either. Right. They had been following him. For a little while, so so they knew him. I, you know, the lesson emphasized, you know, obedience to the word. Well, yeah, you don't obey if you don't know. Correct. Um, They obeyed because they knew him. They were getting to know him, and so they were like, "Well, okay." Yeah. You know, Um, and I think that's where the emphasis is. If we're if we spend our time with the Creator, then when He asks us to do something that in our eyes is crazy or stupid, you know, we can go. Okay, you know, mm-hmm. let it be on you. Whatever happens, right? You know. Yeah, I see the presentation of truth as Christ teaching from the boat, then the application of that truth. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, at your word, mm-hmm. and rowing out into deeper water, and we see evidence of trustworthiness. The boatloads of fish. We see a recognition of God's holiness and our sickness. Depart from me, from I'm, I'm a sinful man. Same thing Isaiah said, you know, woe, woe is me. I'm a man of sinful lips. But we see an appropriate response. To That's right. That's exactly right. When he says that, he is at Jesus' feet. He doesn't run away, unlike, again, what the lesson suggests we should do. Yeah. Um, he hangs on. He's, he's right there, not letting go. That's right. And then we, and good, that's the next point. We see a big, the beginnings of the eradication of fear and selfishness. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And we see then the strengthened faith and, and, and combined with works. They left their boats and they went, uh, they went on to, and they left their boats and their, their wealth and then went and followed Jesus. Any other observations? Just, just one more suggestion. Sure. Um, I sometimes like to think that they didn't just leave the fish there to rot. Um, <laughs> okay, that's you know, fair. I, I think it's highly likely that Jesus was providing for their families. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's all of this. Now your families can have this while you come and follow me. You don't have to worry. Mm-hmm. Um, or he could have been providing for the other folks crap. that were listening. Yeah. You know, the, the poor. Yeah. In other words, uh, um, the sacrifice of the fish yes. wasn't wasted. Correct. No, I, I don't think the fish rotted in the sun. No. And blessings are given to be shared. You know? Yes. That, that well, they fill two boats also. Yeah. Okay, I it, I think it's in the bottom section. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but anyway, the lesson makes an observation uh, yeah, in the bottom section about Peter's sinfulness prompting him to want to be separated from Jesus. 
it, it wasn't the Lamb's wrath that wanted Peter separated. It was Peter's own conviction of heart and mind and soul. Peter's own conscience convicting him that, you know, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And what is it about what is it about sin that they lessen asked rhetorically? What is it about sin that pushes us away from God? Does it depend on which law lens we're looking through? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, if if we think that God is, is there to smite us down because he, he saw us sin, then we are gonna run the opposite direction. You know, if we have this idea that he's just writing everything down with this stern look on his face, all Mm-hmm. Bad for you, you know. But he's not. He he sees it, and it hurts him because it hurts us. And he wants us to come to him for healing. Right. If God were like that, we should run. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's really how God was, we should run from any God, any uh, presentation of God that has him uh, as angry, vengeful. Looking to you know, looking for us to trip up so he can uh, exact punishment, retribution, judgment on us. But it's that whole contrast of if I be lifted up, I will draw all men into me. I will draw all. All men into me. All. Period. Men was actually supplied in that text by the translator. <laughs> I will draw all unto me, uh, meaning, and I think he said that on purpose because he, Christ, understood that there were. At the time he said that, there were unfallen, there were unfallen angels, there were, you know, intelligences in other worlds that still had questions. They still, they still hadn't fully been convinced in their own minds. Never mind, they hadn't followed Satan out of heaven. They had, they had allied themselves with God, but they still had questions in their mind. And evidence was still being, still being presented to answer their questions. And at, at Calvary, at, Christ's death, Satan was unmasked as a murderer. They, then they were, then all, except humanity, all were fully convinced. So that, that's, that, I believe that's what Christ meant to when he said, I, if I'm lifted up, will draw all unto me. But someone of vengeance and fear would not be a drawing. Yeah, that's correct. It directly dispels that perception. Good, yes. Those who are into vengeance and you know, I mean, if, if you live your life angry, um, then a God who is vengeful, who will, in fact, take down your enemies, seems quite appealing. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. And in a way, you see that in the Pharisees. Um, all they wanted was for God to come and you know, strike down the Romans and put them, the Jews, in their exalted status that they were supposed to have. They completely missed the true character of God, and and that's why they missed him, you know, when he actually came. And we're, if you look around at Christians, we're in the same boat. Yes, we are. There, there are people who are, you know, just waiting for God to come, um, for Christ's second coming, so that they can see their enemies. Yep. So we're gonna eradicate Islam and those Islamo fascists and and all and and take care of the Jews who killed Christ in the first place and. Yeah, we're going to see him suffer. Yeah, but, you know, the true vengeance is actually winning winning them to to God's side. That's right. It's it's turning them back into friends of God. That's exactly right. Which is more, let's think think about the context of warfare. 
which is more um, which is more beneficial to your side if you kill an opposing general or if you win, him over to win that general over to your side and employ him uh, in in your in your stratagem fully and effectively Yes. Change of heart. Absolutely. You turn them as, a, as a, an, a, an agent for your side. This is what we see in Saul of Tarsus. He was a powerful uh, general for the cause of Satan, even though he thought he was doing God's work. And he was very, very zealous about it. He was, um, he was sincere. God turned him. God executed vengeance on Saul. And your PT quote um, a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. What was that again? It, it's ineffective treatment rendered with a greater frequency or greater enthusiasm remains ineffective. Yeah. And that, that's not just for therapy. That, that goes across all, all strata of, of health care or education. Or life. Or life. Any that's right. Any intervention. Any intervention. That's right. If it's rendered <laughs> it's ineffective, you can, you can be more enthusiastic about it or do it more frequently. It remains ineffective. I've been ignoring your comment. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking in terms of this, um, something that Graham Maxwell said and one of the things I was listening to, um, we tend to, we, we notice other words as we're studying this as a class that have evolved to mean different things, like vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Dr. Maxwell was talking about the word obey. Now our understanding of, is, of obey is God tells us to do something and we do it. But Dr. Maxwell said that word actually originated from the concept of obey, meaning a willingness to listen. Just be willing to listen to me. And I think because God knows when we truly listen, I mean, listen, not just go, okay, you know. Right. But if we really listen, he can make his case. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's home free if we'll listen. So what he's talking about when he asks us to obey is just let me present my case. And then... We do what he wants us to do because it makes sense. Right. Not because he said something and we go, oh, well, God said it. But but even transcending that is if we if we listen and reject it, he's he's not going to be he's not going to be angry with us and and force us to follow his pathway anyway. Okay, most of most of our I'm glad you brought that up. Most of our concept of obey we learned as children. You know, parents said obey it. If you don't obey it, there's a you know there's there's consequences. You know, typically you know, a spanking or a grounding or removal of privilege or whatever. Um, and we often conceptualize God that way. Parents do what they parents do the best they can with the tools they have with the, what they have to operate with. But. And God will God will use some similar measures. He will He will thunder from the mountain. He will remove privileges. He will He will uh, you know restrain Himself from intervening and allow con- natural consequences to take their place. But in the end, He gives us every freedom to reject what He's asked us to do. Uh, Monday's lesson: the selection of the twelve. Anybody, without looking, anybody remember their names? I think I got, I think I got five. James, John, Peter, Simon, Matthew, Luke, and Matthew. Luke, and Matthew. Judas to begin with. 
Exactly. You know there are two Judases? Yeah. Yep. Judas Iscariot. And, and Judas, the son of James. They have different names in different books. There are two Simons, yes. <laughs> Thaddeus. Yeah, Thaddeus. I don't. So anyway, yeah, I didn't, um, I had to look to get, to get all their names. Why, why were the 12? Was there a significance in the number 12? 12 years ago. Okay, these are some, I wrote down just a, a brief um Brief summary of some of the you know the recurrences of the of the number twelve. Uh, they're twelve months, twelve hours and a.m., twelve hours and p.m. Twelve sons of Jacob, and we're including um, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, leading to the twelve tribes of Israel. How old was Christ when he's first recorded as speaking? Twelve. Revelations uh, 12.1 mentions a woman who we understand to be symbolic of the bride of Christ, having a crown of 12 stars. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 layers of the Holy City's foundation, 12 gates, which is mentioned. The city itself is a cube. We often understand it a 1,500 miles cube, but... The Bible refers to it as 12,000 furlongs. Any other 12? What, what, what's significant about the, about why, why choose 12? Hey, bear in mind, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm looking for answers. I would say that in the case of the disciples, it's because 12 are easier to teach. Um, than 11? Well, then thirteen. It's I mean, almost like the perfect number. If you've ever done like a small group setting, um, it works with any number under twelve. Mm -hmm. You get over twelve, mm -hmm. and it starts to break down for whatever reason. Okay, well, then I've, I've never people stop. That. The introverts stop talking, and the extroverts do all the talking, and and it's it's all. I can't explain it. I've just seen it happen. Okay, um, I have not. Maybe that we haven't really been able to articulate and scientifically define that it is a maybe a scientific underpinning for it. I, as far as yeah, there may be. I, if there is, I'm I'm unaware of it. Uh, yes, sir. So this is totally off the head. Okay. So how many how many times more children did Job have after he went through his experience? Who? Joseph. Job. Job. Yeah. Uh Twice. I don't know. They had the same number of children in the same ratio. The ten again, right? Five and five? No, it wasn't five and five. It's like six and four or something. I don't know. Six is the number of men, and twelve is twice that. So okay. is also uh, that man has fallen, and Christ is the new Adam. Mm -hmm. So I haven't thought it out. I'm just thinking as far as other numbers in the Bible, um, that God is doing something with mankind. To redeem it, and has something. So the the uh, the man of sin has six six six. Yes, he has the perfection or like the trifold union of fallen man, and God has taken mankind and has blessed it and redeemed it. So I think it might have something to do with that. Okay, that's a great observation. I would have never gone there. I'm glad you did. My mind just doesn't work that way. A bit of humor here. My mother had twelve children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Sorry to hear that. 
But the teams going out whenever uh, they were doing uh, the 72 uh, at that point, but in the teams going out and having people be able to pair up so that the disciples had the ability to, to have the support as well as uh, there's the safety factors and all the rest, but to be able to, uh, in their group of 12, be able to have them pair up uh, and uh, have an even number that way be very beneficial versus the odd number and having an uh, odd man out. Carrying on, actually, with your thought, if six is, six is the number of man, in Eden there were two sixes. There was, a man, there was male and female, which makes 12. So maybe... All right. I just want to say 12 inches and a foot. Okay, yes. Yeah, that's right. This is just referring to Job. That, um, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Okay. Why is it for children? 12 inches long. Why is the multiplication tables in 12? You know, there's just many. Yeah, uh, that's right. Why do the multiplications tables stop at 12? Hmm. Okay, are there any commonalities about the, the, the disciples, the 12, the original 12 that were chosen? And also, the, obviously, next question, are there any obvious differences? Yes, sir. They were all men. Okay. Yes, they were. Two of them uh, shared... Um, some similarities because they are called sons of thunder, and they're both they both have the same father, so there are some similarities there. Okay, so similar temperament. Petrus, Peter. They were all searching um, for one. I mean, so that when somebody said we found the Messiah, they were willing to go check him out. Yes, um, they were. Well, I think they were willing to learn. I think that's that one common thread. Yeah, um, and. Their cups weren't already full. Um, they didn't already have, uh, what would you call it, formal education um, in the system. Was he a disciple? Luke wasn't a disciple. He wrote a gospel. And he was a physician. My understanding is that his gospel was written well, 60 or 70 years after the fact. Don't quote me on that time period, but he wasn't one of them. So none of them were educated? Yeah, Matthew, the tax collector. Well, I mean, he he could have known simple math. He he could have just been someone malleable and and willing to work for Rome, who could count. Um, I don't know how much formal education. I think it's interesting that none of them were church leaders. None of them were educated in the rabbinical system, uh, uh, the the Jewish Pharisaical system. In the back. We're, we're talking about the 12, but you know, Jesus had, and those were the leaders of his movement, but he had many other disciples. Oh, yes, absolutely. That were church leaders like Nicodemus and Joseph. And, yeah, I'm talking about the 12 apostles. Right. Yes, sir. They fled whenever, uh, whenever Jesus was about to be uh, led away and crucified. That's right. None of them stuck around. One came back and stuck. Well, they, they came back after they fled. One was a little further off and one was closer, but the other ten, uh, I guess it would be nine, would still have been... Disappeared. Disappeared, yeah. That's right. Eve? Um, in a way, a lot of them were what we would consider the marginalized. Um, you know, they were the tax collectors who mm-hmm. performed. Mm-hmm. Um, the zealots who, oh, you know, be careful what you do around that guy. Um, they're the fishermen 
Yeah, they they smell like dead fish. <laughs> you know, they're they're the people that that God sees potential, mm-hmm. um, great potential, and all they have to do is spend time with Him um, in order to to move there. It, possibly <clears throat> the one exception would be Judas, and technically, you know, he I, have attached himself to the group originally. If if Judas had not followed his own inclination and, and choices. I mean, think yeah. about what a powerful um, general he would have been for the cause. Yeah. So. So. Um, Tuesday's lesson, commissioning the apostles. What insights can we glean from... Christ giving the, the original, the 12 apostles, the power and authority to cast out all demons and cure disease, or to proclaim, proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Why, why were they to take nothing with them except the clothes on their backs? Any thoughts? Faith-building mission. I mean, they needed experience, and then a chance to come back and regroup and debrief and kind of experience a little taste of what it would be like but not on their own yet. They were still kind of fledgling. A couple things. The, the God will provide mm-hmm. element uh, is there as well, but also the blessing that it is to be able to, to help someone. And so when they go into areas, the instead of them being self-contained and, no, I don't need anything from you guys, to be able to be invited into a home so that the, the relationship building and the time together could occur without having the distractions of things weighing you down or or the distance that could be uh, imposed by um, lots of stuff. Do so you think that's why he asked them just to enter the first house they were invited into and stay there, not to move, to move from house to house? Relationship. Okay. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place. So if... That is the image of God, and he was trying to restore the image of God and them to trust in the Father, then he was just asking them to do what he was doing. Good. Excellent point. It's just kind of a random thought that occurred to me, but if you're not carrying provisions, you will stop. Um, <laughs> True. In, in other words... <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. You won't go to a town and go, eh. Yeah, I've got, I've got a sleeping bag. Just carry on a little further. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't. So you're almost forced to stop, and you have to depend on on what God provides. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as not moving from house to house, you know, I've heard of stories of preachers who stayed at somebody's place and then moved somewhere else because the food was better. Yeah. You know, um, and you sort of detract from the message that way. So he was he was giving them guidelines. Here are things that, that you can do that will help the teaching. Um, go further, basically. Yes. Um, we go to a go whenever we're talking about Christ. Everything that Christ did was as his human self. Right. With the power coming from God and through. And one of the things that struck me this last week during devotion and just looking at the week itself is how invasive sometimes our accumulations are. Because I think one of the ways that Christ was so effective was being able to be fully present in this moment. That he was so in tune 
to those around him, to the expressions on their face, to the, the emotions, to, to everything else that allowed him to be such an incredible conduit because he was present. He wasn't worried about the mortgage coming due, the car having mechanical issues, the, 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 the list. Right, and the camel needing to be shod. All the stressors that we, um, we have in our lives. And I think one of the, the most effective tools of Satan that we, that we do, it's a tool of Satan because we just feed into this whole perpetual um, overstressed, not rested, not Dist- present. Distracted, yes. Mm-hmm. Distracted. And uh, as long as he can keep us distracted with something, so we're not tuned in and present with God at that moment. Yeah, success. What's um, why why um, why do you think he juxtaposed healing the sick along with proclaiming the kingdom of God? Okay, is I don't think it's accidental that these two are um, right next to one another, and based on what we've gone over in our class. Shouldn't be any uh, surprise to any of you either. Yes. It's, it's spiritual healing and physical healing. Yes, the, the two go hand in hand. It takes care of mind and body. And what is it about that 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 makes things work that way? It's the way it's the way we were designed. You okay. Can't, can't very well heal your mind if you're sick. If you're physically sick, your mind is not going to be functioning at uh, at uh, full capacity. Conversely. If your mind is sick, it's going to affect your physical manifestation. This is one of the main reasons that Christ fed the crowds before he preached. Sometimes after. These people, you know, had sat all day. Their minds I, weren't in any condition to accept his words, probably. I thought he fed them after he preached. Or at least somewhere in that day. Somewhere in the, in the, in the time frame. So okay, so yeah, they needed they need their their blood sugar was getting low. They're they're having a difficult time concentrating, or perhaps even if it was done afterward, they may have had a difficult time assimilating what they've been told into their long term memories. Lack of blood sugar. When you're not when you're not at your best, when you're sick, you have a tendency to feel more needy. <laughs> Focus on self, yes. Well, I mean, if you're strength and you're good and everything's great and I don't really need you. Right. But if I'm sick and I'm down and I'm out and I recognize my need, then I'm more likely to come to get help. Okay, I, okay, I follow your line of thought there. Yeah, that's right. What, um, there's a, another great quote from, from the lesson from... Christ's object lessons. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Think about that. We have the capability to become omnipotent. Whatever is to be done at his command, capital his command, may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enablings. This put the Ten Commandments in a different perspective. All his biddings are enablings. Okay, this is what this is what we have touched on earlier here. The commandments can also be viewed as ten promises of what of what life and what character will look like if we allow Christ to heal us. And that it's not limited to that. That's right. They were to preach the kingdom of God and its nearness. What what exactly is the kingdom of God they were to preach? The government. 
character and government. The government and character of God. Okay, good. What, how was this revealed? By what they were doing. Um, you know, the, that's part of why they were healing. So that people could see this is what God desires for you. That you should be healed and not just physically healed, which, yes, it's helpful because you're not going to focus as well, but it's, it's an example. It's, it's a demonstration of God's power to heal. And then when you apply that to what he can do in our characters, then suddenly his character becomes more clear. Good. But it's, it's, it's preaching the nearness of the kingdom of God. There was an event yet to happen that, that, that actually, truly, and conclusively revealed God's kingdom. What was it? Christ's death on the cross. That is what revealed the kingdom of God. That God's kingdom is not of this earth. God's kingdom, God is willing to lay down his, his sovereignty and allow his, uh, his created beings to murder him. Okay, that's the kind of God. That's the kind of God that was revealed. That was the nearness of the kingdom of God. To be able to fully reveal what a selfish heart can come to, that and an unselfish heart. Yeah, exactly. that's right. That's the juxtaposition of of selfishness versus that unselfishness. Right. Did you have a comment? Well, I was going to answer something different, but I guess I could... So the nearest... Let me touch on what you just said right there. And then the nearest kingdom of God, going back to, well, I will draw all unto me, mm-hmm. even that has a universal application. Because the nearest of that is through the, the entire universe, because that was going to be drawn unto him. His kingdom was... God was love and, and justice. You know, both of those things together. And the other thing I was thinking of as far as talking about the nearness of God and going out and preaching, I was thinking about when John was in prison... And he had some doubts. Yes. And his disciples once said, are you the one or shall we look for another? And all Jesus did was kept on doing what he's doing. He's showing the image of God, the way he treated people. And he said, go back and tell John what you saw. So when they went out two by two, they were just, they were giving their testimony of what they experienced with God. And they were sharing that with people. So I don't know, those are the two thoughts I had. That's right. And you know what? Instead of, instead of Christ saying, yeah, I'm the one, go back and tell him, I- I'm it. He provided evidence. Okay, that's how God operates. When his when his character was assassinated in heaven, he started providing evidence. He didn't say, "No, no, you believe me or else." He started providing evidence. That's how God operates. Eve, um, just wanted to point out that the nearness of the kingdom of God is something that never changes. Right. Um, you know, it's yes, we we see that at the cross. Very clearly, and and that could have been one thing that he that was meant by that. But it's also God God's kingdom has been near ever since the fall. He has been intervening and trying to to bring us back. I mean, Enoch yes walked with God and was part of that kingdom even here. And and so I, I think that's the other part of the nearness of the kingdom of God. It's it's always right here. All we have to do is reach out, and it's right there. And we become part of it, and then we don't don't just do that; we spread it. Thanks. That, that's very well said. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Wednesday's lesson, sending out the seventy or seventy-two, uh, titled seventy. Uh, what um, 
So Christ prepared 72 people to precede him to the towns that, uh, that he was about to travel. Was, was this was this just a good marketing ploy, or, or was it uh, was there something else to it? Anybody? What do you mean? Was this just a good marketing? What is the list you're referring to? The sending out the the 72 in advance of Christ's approach to the town. It helped the messengers. There's always been a preparation sent ahead for. That's right. But my, my, my question was, is it just marketing or is it, is it, um, it's expedient. something more to it? It's very expedient. It's expedient. It so when you have him a, for when he would no longer be here. Okay. That's good. That's right. It, it kind of, I like where you're going with that. Eventually, yes. Eventually, they would need to be his messengers once he was gone. And what better way to do it while he was there to help them out? Good, excellent. Yes, sir. A comment from online? Uh, no, it's my comment. Okay, your comment. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll listen anyway. There were seventy individuals that composed the Sanhedrin. Yes. And so I'm kind of thinking, maybe not only, that it was kind of a replacement for that group of... For that body? Yeah, that Moses had, Moses appointed 70 princes, um, you know, to to judge matters that were deemed um, of less consequence, uh, you know, and again, he did this at his father-in-law's suggestion, and and his father-in-law being a you know, the priest of the Most High God, so it was ultimately God's suggestion to appoint um, others to take to take on some of the burden. Um, why, why wouldn't, um, why would he tell them not to greet anyone on the road? That's in part, that's in part of Luke uh, 10. I, I think it's verse, uh, I don't know what verse it's in. <laughs> Four? Yeah, don't greet anyone on the road. Why not? Sounds kind of unfriendly. I, I I don't have an answer. I, I'm I'm kind of curious. My, what do you guys think, Wendell? I didn't research that over the week, although it kind of troubled me. Um, but I kind of thought back on what's happened in England much later. And only the busybodies talked on the roads. Oh, really? It was the people who actually had something to say of importance did it in tight a town. Interesting. I, I, I'm not. I wasn't aware of that. But that, that's a good point. Hang on, just a second. Let's wait for the mic. Oh, I was say, I can think of two things. One, it was, okay, it would slow them down. There's some expediency to getting to where they needed to be, so they'd have time to do what they needed to do. All right. And the other thing is it might get them distracted. They may not remember everything they're supposed to do when they get there if they've got too many other things going on. Or personal safety as well. That, um, with the, the highway robbers yep. and all the rest, you know, the, the whole story of the, the Good Samaritan, it was simply in travel that being ambushed and nearly killed. And so in those, those more um, in-between spots, 
to help them be focused and be mindful of personal safety. We don't want to put ourselves into a risky situation just to, to uh, test the waters or to create a problem uh, that personal safety might have, have been part of it. All great thoughts uh, that I hadn't considered. Uh, in the last part of the second paragraph, I think the lesson makes an excellent point. It says, quote, but what is important is that Jesus, as a trainer of leaders for the church, has left a strategy not to concentrate power and responsibility in a few, but to spread it across the spectrum of disciples. Uh, has uh, Protestant Christianity followed that model? Or do we have a, a top-down approach? Or the uh, erstwhile known as the Imperial Roman model? The dictatorial model. But also this allows experiential relationship. Right. It also allows others to interpret scripture differently than we have. Okay, we, we might um we, I think we all have this well, all right, let me back up. I want to speak for myself. <laughs> I have this concept that our interpretation of scripture is the is the correct one. Okay, we, I, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we, we kind of have it on an individual basis. We have it on a church basis. Okay, we, can, we can see that. And it, it may be being because I was raised in this church that I have that individually. But um, how many of you have come across Christian people that have a different interpretation, a better interpretation of a, a passage or scripture that you've been able to learn from? Absolutely. Yes, we all have. I hope we have. Let's go to Thursday's lesson, and uh, if we if we need to, uh, or if we have time, there's some points in Wednesdays I want to uh, come back to. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, um, page 599 or 600, depending on which Patriarchs and Prophets you're looking at. All things in nature tend, all things in nature testify to the tender, fatherly care of our God and His desire to make His children happy. This, this sentence is important to get your head around. His prohibitions and injunctions are not intended merely to display his authority, but, that all, but in all that he does, he has the well-being of his children in view. He does not require them to give up anything that, that would be in their best interest to, to retain. His prohibitions and injunctions are not intended merely to display his authority. Okay? God doesn't just throw his weight around because he can, because he's sovereign. He, he asks for compliance. He asks for, he, he presents the truth and love and leaves us free to decide. Everything he says and does is because he's looking out for our best interest. This, this is a concept that I have only recently embraced. Okay, the, the schooling uh, and uh, the, you know, both from the church and the schools that I went to presented presented the God who was the sovereign, who who had the authority to say things and had the capability to exact um, the worst kind of punishment imaginable. So therefore, if he says it, you do it because he says it. There was little rationale presented. There was this God that. Um, was not doing it merely to display his authority wasn't presented to me. It's only in the last 10 years or so that I have come come to embrace this God concept. Let me tell you something, folks. It is liberating. Amen. Amen. Yeah. 
It's it is unbelievable. Anything that's presented to you in a way that it makes sense, if you still feel that element of coercion by what's going to happen, it still diminishes mm-hmm. the character of God. Even if what God is telling us, and I and you know, I understood that. I understood that what God was what what was being quote unquote required of me made sense. It had reasons. It had it had its purpose. There is still something about God that is diminished that says, and if you don't, yes, to for the sake of the universe. That's the part I never could get to. For the sake of the universe, I will have to mm-hmm. destroy it. Right. It, it diminished is is a uh, an understatement. Uh, I want to suggest there was a doctrine of devils. So, if God doesn't require us to give up anything beneficial, then what is the real cost of discipleship? Letting go of your self ego and uh, and your self driven, you know, the preservation of self, the the self centered life and thought process. Right. Anything else? Or being willing to let go of even what your parents taught you, hmm. or your culture teaches you, or your minister, or or the TV teaches you. Yes, exactly. whatever you know. I mean, those kind of things lead you to think in a certain direction, and you have to be willing to cut yourself off from that. Uh, we'll finish with this you know, from Luke nine uh, twenty three. And he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. What does he mean, take up the cross daily? He said, I have to do it once. He only did it once. That's right. Good. Both, both, yes, cross represents unselfishness, and it is a daily battle. It is an absolute battle. And, you know, I'll ponder this, you know, for as long as you want. How do we end up losing our life if we want to save it? And how do we end up saving it if we lose it for him? Finish with the word of prayer. Eternal Father, I want to thank you uh, for for your character, for the promise of writing that character in our hearts if we will allow it. I want to thank you for all the unnumbered blessings that you give us, those that we, the few that we conceptualize and the many that we don't. Uh, I want to thank you for the um, beauty of this class and the benefit of this class uh, in my life, and I hope in the lives of our listeners. Uh, please continue to mold and shape our characters into that like yours, so that we may, so we can have the privilege of hastening Christ's coming. In His name, Amen.